ladies and gentlemen, it's the end of 2019. And uh, that pretty much means it's the end of the end of the decade, too. That's that's kind of crazy. But here we are on uh, one of the last episodes of the year with Rian and I. We uh, were excited to have brought you. God, it's almost like 30 episodes now since um, since the summer. Um, but we're really happy to have been doing this for a while now. And uh, we wanted to, to go out on a high note and obviously talk a lot about what's going on in Europe and uh, also a little bit about kind of a wrap-up of the decade, if you will, things that have been going on. Right, Rion? Yeah. It, it, it has felt a little uh, – it's fine. I did not think we would get to 30 episodes by the end of the year, to be honest. But I'm, uh, Yeah, I'm that's a proud. lot. I'm, I'm somewhat proud of us. Uh, but – no, yeah, and I'm feeling feeling good about obviously feeling good after yesterday. Not only Chelsea winning, but the Eagles really just I don't know finding a way to keep their season alive again. And now in a very <laughs> unlikely situation that they now have a chance to make the playoffs, especially after just what an absolute shit show of a season it's been for the most part up until like the last three weeks, but. Um, oh, yeah. yesterday was it was a great day for as a sports fan you, you know the last couple of weeks have not been that great <laughs> to be honest uh with the combination with the combination of being a sixers um chelsea and eagles fan uh the last couple of weeks up until <laughs> like yesterday were pretty tough and were making me wonder why i you might have chosen like the most like masochistic fan bases to be a part of yeah yeah uh, pretty much that's that's not too far off honestly <laughs> um i was i was like kind of like why do i even like why do i care about this stuff so much <laughs> like and then i kind of thought about it too like it, part of it must mean that must be like i've just been in a very cold city for like my, <laughs> my entire life growing up and so when this fall slash winter time comes around there's really not much else to get that excited about to do other than hoping that the teams that you watch that you support like do well and that brings some sort of happiness that is not brought by just the horrible horrible weather when you walk outside so that might be part of the reason and uh which made True. yesterday so fantastic that's so true i mean watching that game was something special like i don't know you i'm talking about the eagles game of course but like you really felt like there were there was something going to happen like by the beginning of that game when they went on the first two drives or so it was kind of like, Oh, something really could happen here. Even though we've lost to the Cowboys with the last like four times pretty much in a row. Um, and so I don't know, I, I got good vibes from yesterday. It was obviously a great day. Um, the last, the last week for me as a Barca fan has been not rough, like not as bad for like, I guess compared to you. Um, but it hasn't been great as it usually has been, you know, the last three years. Um, but it's been manageable, so I can't really complain too much. But it's it's yeah, a holiday. Happy to be, I'm, yeah, I'm grateful. Yeah, you've, for, been, you've had a lot of free time there since you've been since you've been out. I've had I've had a ton of free time. I've I've been home since what Thursday, Thursday, Friday. Um, and I'm gonna be home for another week, so it's always good to be be back. Get some home cooked meals in your body that you cannot underrate that. Um, but no, it's always a good time to be home. So I can't, I can't, yeah, that, the, the free food is really the big, the big uh, game changer, honestly. 
I'm, I'm honestly, I'm waiting for the moment where my mom figures out that I'm really just coming home for just the food at this point and just a little bit of pampering. Yeah, then she'll she'll really kick me out and won't let me come home <laughs> until I'm, I've figured out. But no, it's all good. Um, God, we have we have a lot to to get to though. A lot's happened. Even the last like week, it hasn't been that long. But we had El Clasico. We had a huge weekend in the Premier League. We had managerial changes. Like this has all been in the last seven days, pretty much. But why don't we get started and? Um, and talk about, I guess, let's talk about El Clasico because that was last Wednesday in the middle of uh, the work day. I, um, well, I took PTO for that, LAFC and that was really not invaluable not worth it, paid frankly. time off <laughs> to watch <laughs> one of the, or perhaps the most boring Clasico instant memory, um, a game in which. Neither team, I, there was one big chance really, but uh, where PK obviously heads the ball off the line. Um, I believe it was Ramos's header, correct? Or was it Benzema? Benzema. I think it was Benzema's header, and then there was a similar instance on the other right. end where Ramos cleared right. Messi's I mean, shot off the line. Yeah, combi- well. I mean, combined. Yeah, so two, two chances. Six, six shots on target by the, by the two teams. Um, just yeah, t- t- <laughs> tough because you also wouldn't necessarily put either of these two teams' uh, back lines on a high on a very high pedestal. Although Madrid have have actually been fairly solid, pretty solid this season. But um, yeah, you wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily put either of these two on on a on like the best defensive back lines in the league, and still there's only six shots on targets, which is. Not a great look. <laughs> no, no, not even, not even close. Like I think Barcelona's back line has been, to use the phrase, not so lightly as you say, uh, absolute poopy. Um, and so I didn't really expect much from a, I guess, a defensive side of things in this game. I did certainly expect more from an a, a front three perspective. I don't think they really gelled throughout this game, and I'm talking about Barcelona's, of course, but. They didn't really gel. Um, I think a couple of things stood out to me throughout, I guess, the entire phase of the game. One, Jordi Alba's presence back um, since his return to injury has been massive. Um, He is a little bit vulnerable at the back, as we all know. But having him back in an attacking sense has just changed the left side of the attack, especially considering the fact that Griezmann's played a pseudo left wing back role while he's been out. Um, and having him back to make runs up the left flank has been just enormous and it's been fantastic to see him back. Um, the other thing that stood out to me on the other side of the field was that Nelson Semedo coming back from injury as well, really didn't, he didn't shine the way that I would have loved to have seen him shine. And I think a part of that is because Sergio Roberto started in midfield and we've seen the past that those two starting on the right, right hand side don't usually connect very well. Um, I think a large part of it is because Sergio Roberto likes to go forward a lot and Semedo is still trying to figure out how to do that. And so when you inhibit that inherently, it's not going to work for your right back. And so that didn't work too well. And we saw Valverde pulled Semedo out in the second half uh, for Vidal and moved Sergio Roberto to to right back. Um, And from an offensive perspective, the team shape got a little bit better. But the biggest, the just the biggest standout to me 
was why in God's name was Sergio <laughs> Busquets on the bench? Like, if you know the answer to that, let me know. Cause I'm still trying to figure that out because prior to the start of the game, the lineup came out and Sergio Busquets was starting and we got an update about 15, 10, 15 minutes later with a revised lineup saying that Busquets was out and he was on the bench and Rakitic Lord and savior, Ivan Rakitic was taking his, his place. And so that is when I knew the game was really shot, but apparently he had a fever. Apparently I don't, I don't know what happened, but he didn't play the entire game. He started this past weekend. So I'm assuming there, there had to have been a last minute uh, change or a last minute realization that something was wrong. I, I just don't know what happened there to go from starting all the way to being on the bench 10 minutes later. My only theory is that they just didn't want Madrid to change their, or, or get a sense of, you know, what was going to happen tactically or change their game plan accordingly, et cetera. But I don't know. That was that was a weird moment for me. Yeah, uh, that the fact of the late scratch. I mean, and not even a scratch to the point where he's not in the eighteen. A scratch where the point that he's just not um, getting any playing time in this game for Busquets, at least. That was a bit of an odd one for sure. I I do wonder at what this point what's the full context of the Rakitic stuff? So like, what is the feeling of people who I guess go and watch Barcelona every week and, and see Rakitic and I, and I wonder what their feelings are towards him because he doesn't get whistled. No, right? he actually he, doesn't. Does he get whistled? He doesn't, get, doesn't seem to get whistled. He doesn't seem to get whistled when he, when he's in the match and, and yet you know, when I talk to you, obviously, and when you look on like social media and stuff, there's a lot of Rakitic hate, but I, but it doesn't seem like there's that much hate from the actual fans that go to the matches and stuff too. So I wonder what the disconnect is there, at least from the fanatic side, right? Yeah. You, you watch him and you're right. He doesn't offer the same things as Busquets. He just doesn't. He, I mean, I mean, even in, in this match, I mean, there weren't a lot of players to pick out, right, on either side, but I think Casemiro on Real Madrid's side, he I, he's I think he's had a really good season for them. Yeah, I know. I think he's a big reason why they're second in goals allowed in La Liga this season, second behind um, Atletico. You know, he's he's that is obviously a much different type of player than Rakitic or even Busquets, right? But at least like in his position, when you watch it on the TV, like he, it seems like very comfortable he knows exactly what he's doing and and also he doesn't give the ball away very much at the same time again not given the same responsibilities as a Rakitic but you know there's a comfort more in the Madrid midfield especially with Ernesto Valverde's emergence this season who's playing so well to the point where you know that you almost can't try to do anything that'll mess up his like emergence, right? Like in, in in the the fact of bringing in like someone who might take his place, like a Pogba, right? You right. always have to. I'm not saying that you don't go after Paul Pogba. Obviously, <laughs> I'm not saying that. But but it is something to think about now. Is is now there is something to think about? Is how does Casemiro, Valverde, and Pogba fit together if you're going for that type of player and if you're ready to 
move on from Tony Cruz, who you that know would be, has, that would be I think has been yeah, I think I like I I think he didn't start the season very well, but I think he's along with the rest of Madrid team have been playing better recently, at least in the last month or so. Their midfield seems to have a bit more of an identity, even if it means necessarily that they're not the ones creating chances for the rest of the team. Oh, agreed. Agreed, for sure. And I think that this game actually kind of solidified why Tony Cruz is so important for this side. He, like, like everything essentially goes through him. When you start an attack, if it's not a counterattack, of course, the ball flows through Tony Cruz before it goes to an Isco, before it goes to if Modric is starting Modric, or before it goes to, to you know, Vinicius on the wing or something like that. It it literally goes through Tony Cruz as the focal point, and he will distribute from there. And you know that almost every time he's going to pick the right pass, whether or not he's pressed for time or not, he's just that good on the ball. And I think that game, or this game specifically in the Classico, kind of solidified that where you kind of have a, a disconnect between the Real Madrid midfield and Barcelona's midfield is that, well, Sergio Roberto and Rakitic made up the, the midfield two outside of Frankie de Jong, who was fantastic um, on Wednesday, um, despite the fact that the rest of the midfield was absolute garbage. Um, he had a great game. And so outside of Frankie de Jong, who do you really have that A, has the pace or versatility to, to break a press, or be the technical quality to get around it. Um, the answer is none. Quite frankly, none of those players can do that to the level that would need it to be done against a Madrid side, any Madrid side for that matter. Whereas Madrid have Casemiro, Isco, and Tony Cruz, right, and Valverde if they so choose. And all of those three players have something different that they can offer that balance off each other. Whereas the Barcelona midfield in this game, we're not able to do that. Rakitic, by the way, I want to point this out now, check the overlap Twitter later or not actually not the overlap Twitter, excuse me, my personal Twitter um, for a compilation of exactly what I'm talking about when it comes to Rakitic, you'll see what I mean. But what was my, what was my thought? Oh, the midfield, right. The balance, they, the balance. Yes. The balance of the midfield for Real Madrid is there. Whereas it's not there for, for Barcelona, which is why our tour Sergio Busquets and Frankie de Jong, in my opinion, are the ideal midfield. And we saw this past weekend um, at home that playing pretty much any side, Carlos Elena, who has really not gotten that much playing time this season, deserves a lot more because he can offer something very similar to what um, Frankie de Jong can offer in terms of his intensity and energy. And I think that having just those four players around would be fantastic. But uh, you know, Valverde is, is a little stubborn and uh, doesn't really see things that way. So this is all a mute point. <laughs> well, at least he followed up with uh, a 4-1 win. Or Messi was just unbelievable again, and you always have that in your back pocket. Meanwhile, for Madrid, they followed their, that nil-nil draw, or draw with Barcelona with uh, nil-nil against Atleti, uh, Bilbao. A game that they probably should have won with the chances they created, but uh, I believe it was the first time in Madrid's in Real Madrid's history that they put up two nil-nil draws in the league um, consecutively. Yeah, this was. I, I wouldn't say that this was um, a game that Real Madrid necessarily should have just won. This was against an you know a Bilbao side whose defense is, has been incredible this season, right up there with Atletico Madrid's. 
Um, and I think that this was going to be a tough game either way. I'm not necessarily shocked to see it end in a draw. I'm a little surprised that Real wasn't able to squeak a goal. Um, but I'm also surprised that Bill Bow were not able to, to squeak a goal. But I think that goes back to, to saying that, or to, to pointing out the major deficit in Real's side is the fact that they don't have anyone else scoring goals besides Kareem Benzema. Right. And I they have they're talent. Without, they're without um, Hazard, which has to be said too as well. You know, he has an injury. Um, right. That's that's obviously a big miss. But, I mean, even in this game, they, they outshot uh, Bill Bow, you know, 20 to 8, and they had eight shots on target. And, you know, they – they had multiple chances. I mean, Benzema has a chance. We see like Nacho has a chance in front too. I, they they had some. They had chances to good chances in and around the six yard box to uh, right. to put away. But you know that this is beginning of the season. We they had trouble creating chances. I think they're they're doing that at a much better clip right now, um, and they're really really solid defensively. Obviously, this is dropped. This is two drop points. You, you have to look at it that way. It's two drop points for them. Uh, Bill Bow. Christmas came early yeah, for me. No, Bill, I mean, Bill Bow's never. We, we you to say Bill Bow's never. Bill Bow's never an easy game. So, yeah, for sure, I I fully agree. I mean, playing any team that really is in the top six or seven, I'd say, of La Liga is never easy. Um, but Bill Bow always have a notorious choice way of of getting around things. Um, but after the Clasico, I guess, and after this past weekend, really, um, Barcelona do sit on top of the La Liga table at 39 points with Real Madrid trailing at 37. Sevilla behind them. Atletico finally back up to fourth, um, back into the top four. And Sociedad and Getafe, who are pulling up the fifth and sixth spots, respectively, are uh, they're not doing too bad. I know with... Sociedad having an absolutely stellar season and Hitafe, um, I guess pulling through the, the reins of, of last year, they're, uh, they're coming back. Yeah. I mean, I have faith. In so, so, I mean, just to stop with Sociedad, obviously you have the, no, here we go. Mark yeah, Odegaard, yeah, baby. Yeah, no, I mean, he magnificent again this weekend, but especially the, his free kick goal. It's just, I mean, it, he has what another season after this, right? Pretty much. Um, I don't believe it looks like Madrid will bring him back next season. Um, I think for everything that I've read, that it's more most likely that he'll stay at Sociedad and fulfill his two year loan spell with them. But I mean, he, he's he's going to be a big part of the, of the Madrid team going forward. That's has become very clear <laughs> this season. Oh, for sure. For sure. He would be the best thing to happen to their midfield in a very long time. Um, but yeah, I wish him the best cause he's an absolutely star player. Um, and so as much as I, um, as much as I don't want to say it, yeah, he is absolutely fantastic. He's been killing it. Shout out to uh, Alex Isaac on, um, on Sociedad as well comes from, uh, Eritrean origins where, uh, where I have some of my heritage from as well. So he's having a great season, but with that, we're going to go ahead and transfer over to England where we got a very, I don't know how to put this other than unfortunate incident, a, a game 
that was yeah. obviously very big for 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 you, Rian. Um, starting off with, I guess, the juxtaposition between having your African diaspora start um, to what unfolded later in the game. But why don't you why don't you tell us a little bit about what happened? Well, I guess first off, you know, it, unfortunate. It's, it is it is extremely unfortunate. Now it, it's it's really disgusting. Um, what happened in the Chelsea and Tottenham game this past weekend. Uh, obviously you have, this is around the 70th minutes after, and obviously we're going to get into what happened during the actual game first, but I think it's important to talk about what is, unf- that, what the real unfortunate thing is that this is, this incident of Antonio Rudiger getting racially abused by, um, I'm sure it's a very small set of of Tottenham fans and, and it's very possible. Maybe it was only a few, but uh, it's really unfortunate that that has completely overshadowed what was a great game up until maybe up until the sending off. But, um, but what was a really fun match and a massive win for one of, for one of these two teams, but there's like a couple of things here. First off, it really does suck that it's become the most important thing from the match because it's almost like these like racial abusers, that is kind of what they want. Like they kind of win when it becomes the bigger thing, right? They, they win when it becomes the more important than what's going on on the pitch. Right. And, and that's what's really sad. And at least for me, that's, what's really sad is that it becomes more than what you know the reason why we watch this game the reason why we play sports and stuff is more or less to get away from the harsh realities of like what's actually happening in our lives like and and what's actually happening out in society and stuff too and when it bleeds into this escape that is not just escape for us as fans but the players too i I mean (laughs) rudiger who came from italy Yes, yeah, it's their livelihood. Yeah. I mean, yes, it's their job, one hundred percent. And and um, and I mean, not everyone has their job being escape from like <laughs> reality, right? Yeah, <laughs> reality. Um, but you know, that's why they started playing this game. That's why it ended up becoming their job because it was that escape and stuff. And when things that could that could easily happen has easily happened to um african african players or players of african descent when they're not on the pitch and when it's happening to them on the pitch too it's fucking not frustrating it's fucking disgusting it's fucking saddening really and um and i mean the reaction i thought was very good at least from the stadium announcements to because there are three announcements uh, in the stadium of towards the fans saying there's been racial abuse and he's telling them to stop and whatnot. And although I, I know that it maybe seems like there were three different incidents of, of um, the abuse and stuff happening. It's the protocol, at least for the premier league is even if there's one allegation or one incident that's reported, it's kind of the job of the uh, clubs and like the stadium PA announcers pretty much to give multiple 
uh, warnings or multiple announcements. And that's just how the Premier League does it. And it's different in other places. And, and I know, Elias, you'll probably get on to you know, how it's different in uh, FIFA towards uh, as in the Premier League. But, yeah. um, but no, that's how they handled it. And another thing, just before we get on to you know, the difference in, in protocols here, is uh, something that Elias and I both saw, both watched. We both watched the Sky Sports uh, post-match analysis of this game, and and in that there was a panel of um, Sky Sports. There, there, uh, I don't remember the guy's name, but his normal, the normal host of that stuff. And then on the there was also Gary Neville who called this game. Um, Graham Sunis, who's a former Liverpool player, who's all, who's a regular on Sky Sports, and then uh, Ashley Cole, obviously Chelsea's former left back at, at Black English national player. And the the thing that from that clip or from that segment where they they talk about it for a very long time, I was watching it and and they start off talking about the incident and they they go on for about fifteen minutes, which which I was pleasantly obviously pleasantly surprised to see that 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 they would talk about this issue for so long, and that's obviously a great step too. And one thing that I want to highlight most from that is at least Gary Neville's response um, who played for Manchester United uh, in, I mean, I'm sure anyone who's listening to this most likely, or most people that are listening to this will most likely know Gary Neville, but you know, former uh, English national player who played in English national teams with Ashley Cole, who played for Manchester United um, up until the, the late two thousands. And he himself was saying that he feels ashamed of himself that he didn't, in the past, because obviously this stuff happened in the past, <laughs> but uh, it's just easier to see now because we have so many right. camera angles and internet and whatnot. But um, he said that he was ashamed of himself. He's now ashamed of himself for not being more proactive about that stuff happening, and and ashamed that he did that he didn't try to have his teammates walk off the pitch. Because the funny thing about um, or not funny, but like the the interesting thing about what he said is that Gary Neville also works for the English FA or, or works. He's a coach on the English national team, right? And the English FA and national team have been very, very steadfast about how they react to this these types of incidents. You saw in their European qualifiers that. Um, Tyrone Mings was getting abused by the Bulgarian fans and the English FA came out and, you know, talked a lot about how horrible they, um, or how terribly that, that uh, the Bulgarians really dealt with that problem. Right. And, and then you saw Sterling come out and, and everyone on the international team after that game said that if that ever happens again, we will walk off the pitch. We, we are all together on this and whatnot. And it was Really, um, really encouraging, I think, to see Gary Neville speak in the same energy, pretty much, right? For lack of a better word, energy, right? Um, he he really he really yeah. did stick to this. I don't want to say stick to the script because when you watch the clip, he's obviously he's very genuine in what he's saying, and um, it's very interesting to see that the English FA is so united in that. And he went so, and him going so far as to saying 
like when you see what is going on in our country, it is not basically saying when you see what's going on in our country with, you know, how um, nationalism, white nationalism and obviously bigotry and stuff is more accepted in our office. He's like in the highest office. Then he said that it's not really that crazy to see that it's happening in our football matches too. And, and I mean, I could go on much, much longer about, um, about that particular segment, but I was just really right. We, we could talk for well, no, ages well, well, about, I mean, not just about <laughs> yes, yes, that, but like, but, but in terms of this <laughs> particular segment from sky sports, um, I was just, I was really impressed by what was said there. And I found it really, really interesting, especially, um, Ashley Cole too, who's who basically uttered a lot of the same sentiment, um, but at the same time, it was interesting because he spoke before Neville, and he was hesitant to say the walking off the pitch kind of stuff because he was like, "I just don't know how to deal with this." And and then Neville came and said, "Like we should like if this happens again, people should walk off the pitch and stuff." And this is. So, so it was all super interesting to me, at least. Um, I, I know you have your thoughts on it too, and and obviously, Elise, I I don't even know what the difference is in the protocol too. So, so I didn't know I didn't know there's a real difference in the FIFA protocol or that. So if you want to talk a little bit about that as well, <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I guess on the ground specifically, I'll start with the protocol. I was doing a little bit of reading about this too because my my initial reaction when this all happened was why why haven't they stopped the game right like we all know that fifa's protocol you know laws what have you in general usually take precedent over you know specific leagues whatnot um just as a governing body and so my initial reaction was that's weird they didn't they just made three announcements um and so i i realized that the the protocols are in fact different and the premier league protocol is to make those announcements and it's not actually to stop the game and then eventually walk off the field or stop play altogether um which is what the the fifa um protocol states it doesn't say to walk off the field i should clarify it states make an announcement if that doesn't work um, stop the uh, the game, and then if that does not work, or stop the game for a short period of time, and then if that does not work, abandon the game altogether. Those are the three three steps to dealing with this exact incident. Incident, um, and so that was my my reaction was just confusion. And I guess I get the the protocol and and how it was followed in this specific instance. I don't necessarily agree with the protocol. I should say that the Premier League one, but I get that in this case it was followed and we saw Tottenham put out a, a statement as well um, a couple of hours ago where they, they kind of, while they, they stated that they, the protocol was followed and this is, this is what we understand it to be at the end of their statement, they kind of mentioned something along the lines of, but we would like the Premier league to clarify in the future, what exactly is the necessary steps to be taken because there was so much confusion around that. And given that this is such a major game and, and a major incident, I think it's important that the, I, I guess the tone that the Premier League sets for this specific incident will be the tone that it sets for a large number of incidents like this going forward, um, if it were to happen again in the future. And so they need to clarify exactly what the protocol is in relation to FIFA yeah, and UEFA's protocols as well. I don't know if you saw, but after the game, 
um, maybe hours after the game, the English FA put out a statement as well saying, um, you know, uttering again a lot of the stuff that Gary Neville said, but at the same time, they called out the English government and said, some, said basically, we are putting, we are asking the English government to basically like work with us to put a stop to this, like, like help us and like deal with this. Right. So they're asking for help themselves too. And, and I mean, that's, I look, I could not imagine like the, I don't even know, like the NFL, um, going, I mean, well, technically the NFL did do something. I mean, the NFL didn't go to the government when people were, when uh, like Kaepernick and all those guys were, were kneeling, but, but it's like, imagine in, in that, if the NFL was like <laughs> tweeted out to like the white house or something, like it, it's like along those type of lines. Right. But, um, so I mean, that, that was like some pretty stunning for me to see. And, and just maybe my last thing on the, or one of my last things on this, um, at least my last thing from the, the sky sports segment, um, that I also thought was really interesting like Gary Neville basically said, like the reason why it's so important that we that that they figure this out, that they deal with it swiftly and quickly, and and do whatever they can to stand this out. You know, working with the government, whatever that might be. He said because he said basically because the Premier League is the UK or at least England's the greatest export that they have. Which, you know, I, I sat back for like a couple seconds and I was like, well, no way. And then you think about it, you think about the, the <laughs> what, almost what, almost a billion people probably watch this league, right? <laughs> like all around the world, right? You think about it, it's in all, every country. Yeah. Right? You yeah. think about like, <laughs> you think about like how big teams like Liverpool and Manchester United are in like sub-Saharan Africa. Like it just, just as an example, like, you know, the, in the middle East, in, in Asia, all oh, it's right. not that crazy for them to say that it is their greatest export, right? Because if they see, if people around the world are seeing something like this, just think about the way we look at Italy, right? Like, like I, the reason why I think Italy is a pretty racist country is because of Syria is because of what happens to, to black players when they're there. Right. So, so you're, it, it's a great point that he makes. Well, okay. I think I, I get what, I get what you're saying. I, yeah, it is a good point. And I get what you're saying when it, when it comes to Syria, but in the same way that we talked about how, when we heard these chants on Sunday, this was kind of the escape from reality for people. And you come here and hear that Syria and the games in Syria in the same way that they are in the Premier League are still an escape for real from reality for Italian fans and Italian players, right? It's still a game. It's an, it's a festivity. It's a culmination of several days of hard work in that 90 minutes. But in that risk escape from reality comes things that we don't ever want to hear or see and i think i I don't think i think it's you see that come out in those games in italy but it's not as a result of those games that we see the root cause i think the root cause is still the societal issues you know within italy within other societies throughout europe but i don't necessarily think it's because of the game does that make sense 
No, no, no. It's, yeah, you're right. I mean, the, the cause is not. It's a cause and effect thing. Right. You know, the the cause is not. You know, people throwing um, throwing bananas on the pitch, and now that makes the country racist. It's the other way. Right, <laughs> I mean, right. and obviously, they can't call the entire country racist, right? But 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 it's what's happening in the athletic matches, in the football matches, is the effect of whatever you want to call it, that burgeoning nationalist, you know, uh, sediment that is creeping in the society outside of the pitch. Right. And and what, and what I'm saying by like, I think of I think that Italy is not a great place for, um, uh, black people is because of what only what I can see on the, when I watch a Serie A game. And, right. and that's what I think um, Gary Neville's point was, is that even though it's not a complete representation of the country, right? But if you're someone in Thailand or in Mexico or something, right? And you're watching a Premier League game, which is you know, shown to you every weekend and, and, and you, in a lot of ways, you know, the Premier League is almost more accessible for people outside the UK than in it. I mean that's another discussion, but when you're not from the country and you just and this is their only um, representation of British culture in your life, right? Right. Then it's hard to differentiate those two things <laughs> to to see a player get monkey chance at, get monkey chance thrown at him in a game in London, in the capital, right? In the capital of the country, right? It's hard to see that and think, oh, well, the, the country is very, very accepting to to uh, black people or, or to people not from right. the country, right? It, it's hard to differentiate those two things when that's your only, that's your only exposure, really, to that country. Right? Yeah. And I think that's what his point was overall yeah. in terms of it being the most important export that they have. No, I agree with you there. And I, and I think that's very much the case. Um, when it, like, and when you look at it through that lens, right? Like I, I don't think he's trying to make a political point. I think he's trying to put it into perspective for people that aren't necessarily like in England. Right. And don't associate with British culture. Yeah, I, I think he was making a political point, honestly. I, I, I think he was making a. I, well, I mean, not, not political. I mean, it's not political to be fucking racist. Right, it's right, not a right. Obviously, point. that's just a human decency. I, I don't. I mean, I think the. I think he was making a somewhat political point, though, because he does say that when you see it in the highest offices in our country, what do you expect? I mean, yeah, that, like I think he is making some sort of a political point. That's I guess fair i would probably say that's fair because a lot of well we like i said we could talk about british politics for a long time and whatnot but um i get i get his point at the end of the day and i think it was a very valid one i just i i guess the one thing that concerns me is i don't know what kind of change we're gonna see i think this is one of the the oh yeah that's it's just it's one of the major moments that we it's, it's, I guess, England's in the Premier League's first major moment that's so public that a lot of people are paying attention to, and it's left the FA and the Premier League in a, in a tight spot to figure out what is, what is the decision we're going to take to set the tone 
for this type of behavior. And I think this is, that's why it's such a crucial, crucial step because you don't know what that decision is going to be. Um, and I don't know how much faith I have in both the FA and the, the Premier League to, to make the, the, I guess, quote unquote, right decision. I think, I think that's fair. I, I think I have a bit more faith in you just because, just because their response to this stuff has seemed so uniform and so um, aggressive, I guess, isn't maybe, I'll go just like aggressive against it in terms of their, in terms, they've been very aggressive in terms of their stance against what is happening. Um, I, I, th- I think, I mean, obviously we'll, we'll see the fall, the full fallout from this and, yeah, most likely what will happen is that those fans will get banned for life, which as they should, of course. Um, but it's still not enough. Like we know it's not enough. We know that's not enough. That's not going to stop anyone from doing anything else. Um, and, and, you know, I, I don't know exactly what the FA or, or what a singular team could do. I don't know. I should put it this way. I don't know what a singular team can do. And I don't know how to really address this, address this without doing something drastic. And by drastic, I don't mean like taking, giving, taking points away from Tottenham or something like that. Or I mean, something along the lines of it's what it's going to take is, a team on like a global stage like yesterday like imagine i just like imagine if yesterday the chelsea players all walked off the pitch like it's it's gonna take something like something like that it's gonna take something like that to really i think turn heads although people should need to have their heads turned but it's gonna take something like that i think for it to become a real global moment because if if you if that happens then we're talking about you're probably having like sports center here in in in, um in the u.s talking like talking about this like because that's an unprecedented thing like i think that's what it takes and it takes like two maybe not just one the one team it may take something like two teams walking off the pitch and and the game being suspended in that way so Obviously, there's no easy way to deal with this, and and we'll be keeping a very very close eye on what the English FA and even you know if there's a response from the UK government um, as well. But you know we'll be keeping an eye on that stuff. But you know again, overall, like I said at the start, it's it sucks. It's 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 a horrible it's a horrible way for someone to spend like a day at their at their job, right? So I mean. It, I really feel really feel for Rudiger and and um, you know they all said the right things and and I'm sure it'll hurt and and you know you just you hope that like that that something changes but you, you, all you can do is hope and there's no there's no guarantee on any of this and there's no guarantee to stop something like this from happening again sometime this season right so exactly. Exactly. So we'll uh, we'll see how that unravels, I guess, if you will, over the next couple of days, um, especially between now and I guess um, the the Christmas or Boxing Day games, um, really. And so 
we'll um we'll see how that how that unfolds. Um, I'm very interested to see how the Premier League kind of handles this one. Um, I think we both have very similar takes on this, both as uh, people of color um, and also the fact that we play football. Um, so very similar circumstances. But I can't say I've experienced anything like that specifically. I've seen it. I will say that with my own eyes, and I think Rian has as well. Um, but it, this is this is just something that it's just disgusting. I don't, I don't, I don't know how else to say it. I really don't. It, it's just so disgusting. Um, and, and I feel like the worrying part on top of the decisions that are going to be made on top of this is that we're, we're going to be numb to this at some point if we're not already. And I think that's the most dangerous thing. And I hope that we're not numb, numb to this type of behavior because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how you look at it. It's just absolutely unacceptable. Um, and so we'll see what happens with that. But we will go ahead and uh, and move on to the City Leicester game, the other big game of the weekend. Um, to oh, oh, we got to talk about we got to talk about what happened on the pitch. <laughs> I mean, oh, oh, yeah. I totally forgot that we didn't talk about that. <laughs> wow, I actually thought we were like, oh, we totally covered the game. Yeah, all right, yeah, let's talk about the game. So, you want to start with uh, the goals or the fact that Tottenham didn't play well at all, or where do you want to start? Oh uh, well, I will start with the. Diaspora back three, dude. I mean, <laughs> on a on a horrible horrible day, horrible way to end the day. It was wonderful the beginning at, at least. Um, Chelsea went to a three four three in this game, which they have played um, three times this season, I believe. Uh, once against Wolves very early in the season, and uh, they played it against Lille in their second Champions League game in the season. Uh, uh, and I believe they played it against uh, Valencia in uh, when they went to uh, Valencia in the fifth match of the Champions League this season. So it, it's not, it's, it was a formation that they were familiar with. And obviously some of these players played it under Conte two years ago and were familiar with it in that sense. I think one of them obviously being William, who had a magnificent day, he put in, the best for it's the best performance I've ever seen him play for Chelsea. And, and, um, and he was obviously huge in this game, but those three at the back Tamori, Rudiger and Zuma, I think were perfect um, counters to what Tottenham wanted to do. Right. Like a lot of the goals we've seen Tottenham score, at least since Mourinho has come in. Right. Um, a lot of them have been kind of long balls and, you know, um, Delhi getting back to what he's so great at, which is making those runs, uh, su- supporting the striker and making long runs in behind. And obviously, Sun is always a massive danger for that type of uh, that type of ball and that type of run too. And Lampard just threw out his three fastest defenders and, and and put them at the back, and it was not remotely a threat for Tottenham, at least that type of attack. And and they made. They basically, even though they they uh, even though Chelsea did dominate possession, they made it so when Tottenham had the ball, like Tottenham had to basically play through them. And if you're putting out a midfield of Sissoko and Dyer as <laughs> as your two <laughs> central midfielders, you're not going to be able to play through anyone. <laughs> so no. Um, so I mean, I, I thought just starting from the back, it was great, great stuff from. Um, Lampard for choosing the formation, obviously, but uh, just how easily the those three center backs were able to deal with um, 
Tottenham's uh, front three. Yeah, I think that this was this was a game where we found out something new about Lampard. And I think that I, I say that with a little bit of hesitance, but I think we found out that a 3-4-3 for Chelsea is at least in this game worked really well. Like I, I don't know if that's the the solution going forward cuz you lose a little bit of stability at the back and that's something that I don't know if they can afford to lose, but with a 3-4-3 they looked fantastic like they they look like they controlled the game i think that added body in midfield helps but they but i think the 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 fact that they didn't look vulnerable against spurs attack which features very good players um i think i think that's the bigger thing and being able to have the space to play out of the back to play the way that they didn't control the the tempo of the game with one less body back there was huge it's almost like you shouldn't have let david louise go <laughs> that was a good one that was good that was, that was really funny um i'm not even gonna dignify that um <laughs> but, but no i mean there's obviously something to talk about with with Tottenham here. Like I said, when you play Sissoko and Dyer in there, I mean, all joking aside, you're getting no creativity. Like Dyer, I've I don't think I've seen him play a single forward pass this season in any of the matches. I've seen. I it's unbelievable. <laughs> he passes it sideways and backwards. Like he actually makes the decision to pass sideways when if he just wants to be slightly risky it's not even that much of a risk most of the times just can you split two defenders who are who have like six or seven yards in between them and you have a teammate right in front of you that could possibly break the lines now he's gonna just pass it off to the left back it's it's much easier and uh, it gives them something to do oh my god he's he's literally the rakitic for (laughs) i just realized that it just hit me continue (laughs) <laughs> of course of course but i mean seriously like those <laughs> that front three that front three is wonderfully talented but if erickson is not going to start and then when he does come on looks like he doesn't want to be in this team at all which it looked like when he even got subbed on um then you, there's they're almost like at a united level in terms of creativity in their midfield like, like a united without pogba level Right, um, in Dombele, I think I still yet wow, to play. Well, wait, 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 wait. Are you <laughs> okay? United without Pogba is that's bold. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Do you, <laughs> I mean, seriously, Sissoko and Dyer. Do you expect either of them yes, to create? Yeah, okay. like, like, is that actually expect, yeah. any any? like better than a Fred McTominay midfield like in terms of midfield creativity. Like, is it actually any better? I, I mean, I guess not in like on paper. Because none of Honestly, those maybe, are scoring goals. Fred and McTominay are better. Yeah. I mean, at least McTominay right. can score. will will occasionally score one from outside the box. Fred's not going to score nor make a, a uh, somewhat entertaining a genuine difference. pass. <laughs> like, um, yeah, <laughs> I mean, and then we know, like, like I said, Dyer's not going to pass it forward. And then Sissoko is actually 
just doesn't really know how to shoot at all. So that's no goal is coming from there. And obviously neither of them are going to provide assists. So like that's a very Mourinho type of double pivot there. That is a very classic Mourinho double pivot. He went into this game being very pragmatic when when the teams, two teams have absolute opposite form. Chelsea lost four of their last five, and Tottenham have won four of their last five. And Mourinho, in a match at home, went about as pragmatic as he could in the midfield and went with two guys who he was just, I suppose, expecting them to just be more physical than Chelsea, um, which is another thing that was just so abundantly clear. Like, Chelsea just kicked their ass, like, in every fast of the game they were winning they were no, no bias, got to every well i mean the score line i guess i am biased by the score line <laughs> like that's there's my bias <laughs> like i'm biased in the fact that that at no point did tottenham look right. like, i'm biased in the fact that at no point did tottenham look like they were ever going to get back in this game <laughs> even before the red card like it, and and through the first 45 minutes they provided pretty much nothing in terms of the um in terms of attack on onto Chelsea's defense. But, you know, that was a very pragmatic midfield, and it was very, very Mourinho-esque. I'll put it that way. Very Mourinho type of midfield there. Where I mean, quite frankly, it just didn't work. <laughs> it didn't work, too. Oh, well, yeah, I mean, of course. And, and it, it didn't work. And they got out, and they got just, I think, out-hustled, really. Like, they didn't win a lot of 50-50 balls. It just seemed like the energy from Chelsea was much higher. Like, just, you know, talent talent stuff taken away, tactical stuff taken away. Just the effort seemed more genuine from Chelsea and, and more uh, more cohesive, I guess, is probably the word I'm looking for. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. I think that's very fair. I think they had overall not only the better players quite frankly but they had the better performance to back it up um and this was this was one of those games where i think that at the end of the season you especially as a chelsea fan will look back on and say it not that this was a season defining game but i think this was a very impactful game to kind of recognize what the strengths and weaknesses of the team were and what the team can look like at top gear like you you realize what at least a peak or near peak can be and how good this team can be with, with this game, especially against a team like Tottenham and away from home on top of that. Like this is all around. This is a positive performance and hugely positive takeaways from um, what's it called from this game. The only downside is maybe, uh, maybe William doesn't come to Barcelona after all. And you might have to, you might have to keep him. Well, let's see. We'll we'll, let's see how the rest of the year goes. But I'm sure. But I mean, basically every year it seems like Barcelona is going to put in a bid for him, and he just doesn't want to leave. So it doesn't even really matter that point. But uh, we we should get onto the two big uh, referee calls from this game. Let's start with the Son incident. Um, Sixty second minute. There's a ball played out to the left. Son and Rudiger are going for it. Rudiger fouls Son. No, knocks him over, whatever. It's a foul, obviously. And as Son is kind of on his back 
and Rudiger's standing above him. I think Rudiger's kind of yelling that that the, that he got the ball, pretty much something like that. He, and while he's doing that, Son for some reason kicks his legs up in <laughs> up into, into like Rudiger's face. stomach, into like Rudiger's stomach and and kind of and like yeah. whatever thigh area or, what, or whatnot. For re- for some reason, I have no no idea why he did that. But I remember in the moment realizing that saying like wait what the why and jumping out and being like what is just happened there and uh, obviously in the moment i would say and, and even our friend desmond the spurs fan i did text i said i think it's a yellow but i think i think it was a yellow yeah, no yeah well obviously it turned out to be a red but i I actually can very much understand the reasoning for a red there. I, I'll wait for your opinion too, Elise. But when no, I, I I'm not even going to disagree with you. I 100 yeah, agree it was a red. That, because Continue. just because of the action, um, obviously, obviously Rudiger didn't actually didn't they obviously didn't have that much of an effect on Rudiger's like stomach area and stuff. And you can even see. Um, after he goes down and kind of yells and, and he kind of peeks his head back to see the referee running over <laughs> to see if the referee runs over and like notices it. Uh, so obviously he is trying to get <laughs> son sent off, which sucks. Uh, you know, it, that, that obviously we don't love to see that, but, um, but the actual action of the kick out, that's, that's a red all the time. Like, like when I really think about that it is always called the red, uh, whether it's, whether you really make, contact or you know or or totally hurt someone right that is a red like like if you swing you try to punch someone and you right. miss like they're, they're, like that's gonna get called a red <laughs> like that's just because you don't hit someone doesn't mean that it's not a violent conduct right exactly no it's it's the action itself of kicking out that makes it a violent action like it it, it Son's a nice guy. Like, we know that. Like, that's fine. But it's the fact that he kicked out after the fact that the foul was done. Like, he just didn't have to do that, and he wouldn't have even gotten a card, for that matter. Not even a yellow, just a card. So, I don't really understand. It was going to be a foul on his... Rudiger. Like, it, like, he didn't need to do anything. Yeah, no, exactly. He foul. Yeah, I'm not sure where his head was at, other than maybe, like, the emotions of the game. Like, I'm sure that he was upset at the scoreline and that is fair but you shouldn't be taking it out on rudiger there i'm just not sure like what his thought process there like he he actively kicked out after the play was dead which means that he actively thought about kicking out a rudiger and so i just i don't understand how this has happened also if you had told me that sun would be on two red cards halfway through the season uh, and be near the top of the Premier League for red cards, um, I would have been very surprised and would not have taken that bet. But yeah, it's kind of, yeah, it's, yeah it's pretty, that's pretty absurd. Um, I, a, small, a short aside, too. I think a lot of this, too, a lot of what the contrarian um, opinion of that this maybe shouldn't be a red card, like the, the argument is that, oh, Rudiger made a lot out of that and stuff, which, yes, he did. He did for sure. Um, I just think no one would have been able to argue the contrary if Rudiger. So one of Son's legs did go into Rudiger's uh, stomach area, like around his ribs or whatever, and that's where you see him grabbing, right? 
But the other leg was kind of around the groin area. And so I think if Rudiger just kind of goes down and starts holding his uh, testicles, the testicle area there, <laughs> and act like he got very, kicked, very kicked in, <laughs> yeah, act like he got kicked in the dick, basically. <laughs> no one would ever, no one would ever really doubt you there, dude. I, I mean, he'd have a lot more sympathy, and no, and, and at no point would anyone be like, oh, well, he made a lot out of that." You know, no one would, no one ever doubts how how delicate it is to get kicked in that area and for it to hurt a lot. So, you know, just something for the future. You know, for those of you out there, you know, if you ever if you ever do want to sell something, just just act like you got hit in the balls, and then it, I mean, no <laughs> one's no one's gonna no one's gonna really try to question it at that point and yeah when you're a red card in the future but but you know that's a, that's obviously that's obviously a little aside and uh do with that what you will uh listeners you're but, out here playing uh 4d no nay 5d chess yeah but we're, uh, we're i'll do whatever it takes to get someone sent off in an intramural game <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's so true <laughs> Oh, those were the days. Those are the days. But yeah, I mean, overall, this was generally a good game for Chelsea. Like, and for Tottenham, this is just another slide down their inevitable mid-table ending that we, while I didn't think was reality, might very well end up being reality. They'll still be like a top ten team, but like it might not be that high in the in the in the rankings still yeah and, and if things don't go that well for uh for gazaniga and this whole goalkeeping thing i think he's got a great career in the mma i mean that <laughs> challenge was absurd i mean i mean more absurd was the fact that it was called a foul <laughs> on, on Marcus yeah. Alonso immediately i and obviously anyone who's watching that Especially any Chelsea fan who Tammy, watched that. Tammy was, Abraham lost his mind too. Davinson, Davinson Sanchez on Tottenham. As soon as as soon as Gazaniga does that karate kid like move and it takes out Alonso, Davinson Sanchez, you can see, puts his hands on his head. Like, what the fuck are you doing? So <laughs> the the only person that thought that could have possibly been a foul on Alonso was the referee who must have just been looking in the crowd when this happened and turned back and saw the goalkeeper on the ground and was like, "Oh, it must be on it must be on Alonso." But I mean, that was just absurd. That was uh, that was an absurd challenge. I don't know what the hell Gazaniga was doing. Another one where it's just like these 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 Tottenham players it, nothing has changed in in the six years since Pacha was their coach, was their uh, became their coach, they, they're still so frail, like mentally. Yeah, I don't, I don't really know what to make of that challenge, other than it was. I think the best way of putting it is a lack of concentration. I know that sounds like a kind of a cop out, you know what I mean? It, it mm-hmm. really does, but it really was just a total lapse of like what was going on. That's the only way that you can explain someone lashing out of the way that they did. Like otherwise, otherwise you're just stupid. I don't, I mean, it's just not normal to do that. Right. Unless you completely lose your mark, lose your head. Like, and that just shows exactly where the Tottenham team is. I think that perfectly encapsulates them regardless of managerial change, regardless of, you know, recent performances, they're not in the right headspace. And we haven't seen that since the beginning of 2019 for quite frankly. Yep. 
So shall we move on to the second and third teams playing each other this weekend? We saw City hosting Leicester, or Manchester City hosting Leicester City. And coming to this game, Leicester sitting on 39 points, City sitting on 35. And after this game, you kind of wonder, how the hell is that possible? Oh, uh, yeah, this... This was very this, honestly for me. This was the the game of the weekend. Figuring out who was gonna who was gonna not necessarily leapfrog, but look like the better side at the very least. And for a large part of this game, it really felt like it was Jamie Vardy against the rest of the world. And if the world is the Manchester City starting eleven, um, but quite frankly, at the end of the day, this was Manchester City shoving talent down Lester's throat. Like there was, there were times in this game where I thought that not that the city could run away with it, but that just there were, regardless of what Lester did, there were times where there was nothing that they could do to necessarily stop city in their progression of play. And this is just the perfect example of, you know, how we always say that talent shines through against when you're, when you're playing, uh, you know, the top teams over a consistent period of time, Talent was what will get you over the line um, at the end of the day. But Lester still put up a fight. Like, I mean, Jamie Vardy did his best. Yeah. And I mean, Jamie Vardy put up a is, fight, really. And he, yeah. I mean, that was pretty much the only chance Jamie he had did. all game, too. I mean, this is just City are just. We, I mean, we talked about this. Like, their attacking talent is unbelievable. They're. Uh, I'll still go. Kevin De Bruyne is the best midfielder in the world, and I don't know how anyone can really argue that at this point. Uh, he's definitely the best player in in England. Um, they they were just too much for them. They're just way too much for them. And 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 Leicester can really only Leicester's they're just not as dynamic. I I think that's the biggest thing I took away is that there's when you look at these two teams, like one team has a very, very dynamic attack, which obviously a lot of that has to do with the talent they have. Uh, and the other team, their only mode of attack was, gee, I hope that uh, Jamie Vardy gets matched up 1v1 with uh, Fernandinho. And, which, which is what <laughs> happened on the goal. <laughs> like, you know, it exactly. was a ball forward and just turned into a race between him and Fernandinho, and he's going to win that every single day of the week and um right and obviously i have to give him massive props for that finish that finish is unbelievable when i was watching it live like i, I thought the, i thought the shot got i thought the shot may have been deflected and that's why it like looped so much and kind of like perfect like perfectly fell in like that but you know when they showed the replay and he actually just chipped him from with the ball moving that quickly away from him and at like such a tough angle, like, it was an unbelievable finish from Jamie Vardy. And, and you know, he's, he's sitting on top of the league with 17 goals through 18 matches. And, and, and he's 33 years old and he's hit 20 goals in like the last four seasons, I believe. Uh, I mean, he's going to hit it. If he hits it again this year, it'll be four straight seasons. And, it's, and you think it's just unbelievable. And he's done this all in not not playing for a team that can spend all the money in the world like he he's not he's not playing with with granted this lesser team is great this is this is a very good lesser team but yeah he, right. he's not playing with a kevin de bruyne like he he hasn't he played with riyad Mahrez, of course but 
you know, he hasn't played like a Mezit Ozil. He, he hasn't played with a Seth Fabregas. He's doing all of this, a lot of it on, on just his pure, like, you know, determination is kind of a cop-out in terms of, of where to describe him. But, you know, talent, talent-wise, you know, his talent is what drives him to, to put up these numbers. It's not necessarily the players that are around him. Right. And like we always say, talent will shine through. And in this case, this is a perfect example. It's just his talent was not enough to overcome the entirety of City, right? That, right. That's right. not going to happen. And it, and it didn't in this case. But right. he is seriously one of – he has to be one of the players of the decade in the Premier League this this past decade. Like he, he is up there with just being that impactful for, for Leicester. And so – I'm glad that he was able to shine through in this game, but City are hanging on by a thread here, and they needed to to prove something. They're not going to win the Premier League at this point, like realistically, but they needed to put up some sort of fight or or make some sort of statement. And I think this is the best way to do that. Um, and really, the way that I look at it is Jamie Vardy got in the way of what could have been a perfect performance for City um, in in this game. Yeah, I mean, I, I think this game really showed the the difference in class between the two teams that we know are the two best teams in in uh, England and everyone else. When easy, e- oh, I mean, super easy to shit on this on this Arsenal, this current iteration of the Arsenal team. But you know, these past two performances, them against Arsenal and Leicester, do that to do that in consecutive games and just absolutely dominate two teams so easily and and yeah. you know obviously De Bruyne looking to just absolutely delete two defend two back lines <laughs> so easily make it look so so easy they just couldn't hang with them at all to do this against Arsenal and Leicester you know where one team was sitting in second above you and then you know Arsenal is Arsenal and then that was and that was a game away to Arsenal that wasn't a home game um they're, it's just they're these two Liverpool and and City are just on. They're like on another planet compared to the rest of the league. I mean, even with Leicester, Leicester might be in second, but Leicester may as well. In this game, they may as well had been an academy team playing playing a professional team. Like how it looked for most of this game, three one was very flattering to them. Right. No, agreed. I fully agree. So. I do think that this is a great game for City, but uh, at the end of the day, we both kind of know it's not going to be enough. And I think that shows in what the table looks like right now. Do you want to run through it? Yeah. I mean, the table's actually has a definite surprises, although I'm sure you will not be surprised with one of the teams in our top in the top six. I will not. Um, but obviously, after the weekend where Liverpool don't, don't play, they – kind of pick up points on second. I mean, not literally, but it's drop points from Leicester. So if they win, they ex- they have a chance to extend their lead um, to 13 points in the Premier League uh, after, which will be after 18 games. Just, just unbelievable. Uh, they, they still have yet to lose the match. And so that, so that'll be a fun storyline. The second half of the season, um, them possibly chasing the invincibles, but Second, Leicester at 39 points. City um, making up some ground. They're just one point off Leicester now at 38. Chelsea with the win, creating a six-point gap between them and Tottenham, who sit in seventh. 
in fifth, we have those marauding outside center backs of Sheffield United sitting in fifth place, four points Let's off go. Chelsea in fourth. It's a, it's a, I mean, uh, their manager has done, uh, their manager's Chris Wilder has done an unbelievable job with this team. I and mean, they're, they just got promoted. Like you have to remember this. <laughs> they just got promoted and we're almost at the exact halfway point of the season. And they're sitting in fifth. They are five points above Arsenal. And Honestly, they might deserve to be more than that, right? Like it's it's absolutely like like fantastic what what um, Chris Wilde has been able to do, and then we go into sixth at twenty seven points. Wolverhampton Wanderers with Nuno, his team pulling out a, a great win this week. And I know it's against Norwich, who are sitting in the bottom three, but but they did go down early in that game and. It takes something to fight back and and win a match. Like like that's always that's never an easy thing to do, especially when you're away from home. So uh, great stuff from there. I have to give like I begrudgingly have to give a shout out to Raúl Jiménez, the Mexican international. As much as it pains me to see him do very well for their national team, he is he's so uh, he is really one of the most underrated strikers I think in Europe. Um, in terms of what he does for a team, his hold-up play and his ability to create for the other players and like put their other players in great um, chances to score goals themselves and and like his ability to link up play in their team and and do things other than scoring goals. Even if he doesn't score, he seems to have a great game. Um, he has five assists on the season already and to have that from your striker in the first 18 games of the season, I think that's pretty great. He has a good chance of hitting maybe 16 or 17 goals and, and 10 assists. And that would be an unbelievable season. And, and that would, I mean, if he does that, I think they'll, they'll definitely finish top six. So um, some great, great stuff from, from the teams in fifth and sixth who are just definitely, who are massively over, maybe not a massive overachievement for wolves considering they finished um, seventh last season, but know some great great stuff that we're seeing from these like non-traditional powers who just come in and play so especially from Sheffield United but these two teams that play very positively and are not pragmatic for the most part um and you know are just picking up points uh, when you don't expect them to which is obviously a great mark of a of a um of a very good team a team or a good team I should say in the making for sure but with that, that is the top six update in England as well. So we are going to take a quick break and come back with a couple of managerial changes and our three decade-defining moments from the 2010s. Ladies and gentlemen, I really try not to do this often, um, but I have a confession to make. I lied. I lied. We're going to do the three decade defining moments in an additional episode. Rian decided, or Rian and I decided over the break that uh, we should probably do it in its own separate thing, considering there are three pretty big moments that we each individually came up with. And we want to talk a little bit more about that in depth. So we're going to wrap up today's pod talking about the managerial changes in England specifically with, of course, Carlo Ancelotti coming to Everton, which is a sentence I thought I would never say. And, Arteta, Mikel Arteta, coming back to his home, the Gunners. Rian, let's start off with 
against Carlo Ancelotti because mainly, well, it's at the top of my notes. But what do you what do you make of this appointment? How he left Napoli to to come to Everton? I mean, it, it's a huge win for Everton, not just to get uh, a manager of this caliber, but for the first time in their club's history, they have failed upwards. It's <laughs> unbelievable. It, it's, I, I never thought this could possibly happen for them. I mean, they've been watching their their crosstown rival fail upwards for the for well, I mean, failing upwards, but you know. They they kind of Liverpool kind of failed upwards in terms of getting Jurgen Klopp having Jurgen Klopp yeah. to be available to them after the debacle that was the Brendan Rodgers the end of the Brendan Rodgers era, um, but and then if, if you want to say Liverpool has failed upwards at times this season too I would not uh, begrudge you on that either in terms of some of their results but no this is now it's uh, Everton's turn they they went from. Uh, they went from Marco Silva, and before that, Ronald Koeman, who both coming into their managerial positions at Everton were had a pretty decent reputation, right? And, and obviously, and, and Koeman has gone on to be the Dutch national team coach after failing at Everton, so that didn't even make sense in the first place. But anyway, uh, no, then they went to Marco Silva, who just the the team did not progress in the 18 months that he was in charge like at all and uh slightly got worse and it was just really really depressing to watch in his last basic month there because every time they would basically throw a game away in the last half hour his face just looked like a man that that um thought he was about to get fired and and it just it finally did happen and now to bring in a manager like Carlo Ancelotti, I'm going to be honest, it's a bit strange. It's, if you're Look, if you're Everton, you do this without even thinking, right? Like it, You've never had a manager who has come in, who coming into the job has had such a high reputation as Carlo Ancelotti. It's like in the same sense where, yeah. where when we were talking earlier about Real Madrid, like you do whatever you can to get... Paul Pogba, like, like even if you even if you're not sure, it'll actually end up being a good thing. Which you know, United obviously might be having some of that buyer's remorse themselves right now. But well, they're probably not because he's still the best player on their team by like God knows what the range is. But um, <laughs> solid margin, <laughs> yeah. But but uh, but if you're Everton, you do this do this without you even thinking, right? Ancelotti, it's a bit of an interesting one um just the profile of the teams that he's gone to in the past have been very established obviously and and have been teams with not only just a lot of talent but a lot of experience right um you look at when he joined the his last few jobs when he joined napoli joined napoli after they've come finishing second to juventus the last uh what two seasons so, so you know, a very established team that had a lot of the same players who played together and, you know, obviously a lot of talent there too. But before then, you had the Bayern stint, again, that was right after Pep Guardiola, which is probably a pretty horrible man to follow in general when you're a manager, a new manager of, of a club. Uh, and that went pretty horribly because the players 
basically we're like he doesn't really train us <laughs> we don't really do any of the tactical like training stuff, which it's it, like we don't do that here <laughs> no i mean like like they that was that was their problem with Angelotti. was like like especially after having pep guardiola who i'm sure is just kind of just infiltrating your mind in your sleep almost with how much he probably talks about um tactics for for upcoming games and and in preparation and stuff so going from that to Ancelotti who is known for being very laissez-faire and very like oh just go out and do it and got kind of stuff and obviously there's more to his managerial um, expertise than that, but but <laughs> you're giving a very interesting overview. Yeah, yeah, but but you know, just looking at the past teams, you go back also to the Real Madrid team that was very established, very established team already, right? a very mature team, and all he was brought in there to do was take them over the hump, which he ended up doing, obviously. And then before that, the PSG stuff, which was a mixed bag in itself. But uh, again, another established team where their two best players were Ibrahimovic and Silva, two very, very established experienced players at Everton. His best player is Luca Dean, maybe. And probably Richarlison. The ex Barcelona man. Yeah. Yeah. And and, yeah, pretty much. And and like Richarlison, uh, you know, not a lot of experience in some of their best players. You know, maybe he'll be able to kind of help his fellow uh, compatriot uh, and Moise Keane. Maybe, maybe he'll maybe he'll have some good of, of effect on that on a young player there. But he's not really known for developing youth players in the past. Um, so he has that, and then and then he has to look to to his back line and, and see the, that spaz in goal, Jordan Pickford. <laughs> who, who, How dare you attack England's not, number one? Who I was not remotely surprised to see wearing a uh, freaking child's cap over the weekend um, <laughs> in the Arsenal game because obviously there was a sun, but I was not remotely surprised that he was wearing a hat like that. And just, you know, it's very, this guy's just such a spaz. What but do you have against him? What did he ever do? It's just a spaz, man. I, I don't know how to explain it. You just have to watch. But, um, but no, it's it's a very interesting one because it, it doesn't really fit with any of his past uh, jobs, and I mean, I'm really, really interested to see how it goes. But if you're if you're Everton, you take this and you you give him as much time, pretty much as he needs, because again, it's the most high profile manager you've ever had, and he's going to get the time. And we're going to find out if you know he can take a team that is pretty much underachieving uh, not saying that they should be a champions league team necessarily but they should be a team f- quite solidly in the top half and and they're yeah, not fair. right now and um we'll see he's never had to do something like this before so i'm excited to see how it goes yeah i don't know how this is going to turn out quite frankly because he doesn't have the pieces around him in my opinion to, to be successful just yet um or what his idea of success i'm sure looks like but I think that come after the Euros and the start of next season, I think we're going to start to see maybe a semblance of a team that he wants to put together. And I know there have been talks of the type of signings that he wants to make over the summer um, and stuff like that. And so I think that um, I think that we'll get a little bit of a clearer idea of 
what this team might be able to achieve next year. But for the remainder of the year, it's kind of, I don't know about you, but I think this is kind of a crapshoot in the same way that I think the, the rest of the year for Arsenal is kind of a crapshoot. No, I agree. I agree with that. I mean, it's, it, you know, they're again, they're not expecting to get up into, to really legitimately um, finish in like a fifth or sixth position. Right. But um, it's just, not just damage control because you know that their interim their caretaker manager duncan ferguson came in and and i think did a very good job of at least damage control right he went three matches he played um united uh arsenal and chelsea and didn't lose any of those games he picked up five points like he did damage control which is exactly what they needed and you know it got them away from the uh the bottom three and now like the times for real work for Ancelotti is to probably, maybe it's more of a confidence thing at this point, I think, is to instill confidence in these players. And there's no reason, I, I really think there's no reason that as an, Ever, as an Everton fan, you should look at the team that you have and look at a team like Wolves or, I mean, to a lesser extent, or maybe to a greater extent because they're above them, Sheffield United. There's no reason that you shouldn't, be around the same area as those two teams, especially in a season where the traditional big clubs are going through a transition, where so much of the league is seemingly going through a transition, right? There's no reason that I, in my opinion, or those players on Everton, really, there's no reason they should be 10 almost 10 points behind Sheffield United who just got promoted there's no reason in in any sense that that should be happening for a club of Everton stature and for a lot of these players who are genuinely talented enough to be at least in like the Europa League right I I think a lot of these players are at least Europa League quality and, and, and well, when you think about who's in the Europa League from England this year, yeah, I don't disagree with you. <laughs> right, right, and, and and you know, I I think it's going to be really tough because they don't necessarily have the money to spend. Like you know, they're obviously their crosstown rivals at Liverpool, and and, and maybe even to a lesser extent, um, they definitely don't have the money to spend. Like even a Tottenham, right? So it it's going to be a lot of coaching and, and that's the reason why Sheffield and Wolves are that high is the coaching. And that's really the last piece for Everton. They, they've, they've had the players, I think to at least be challenging for top six um, for the last couple of years. And I just don't think they've gotten it right necessarily on the manager. And hopefully, hopefully that's, that's what changes for them there. And they've, They've taken a big swing here, and and if it doesn't work out with Ancelotti, you can't say they didn't at least try. Like, it's like, you know, so that's all I've got for Everton, at least. Um, shall we move on to the other North London club that we have not gotten to talk to today, and the team that played yes. Everton this weekend in a game that really made me question why I watched the sport. <laughs> <laughs> luckily you know the games for the rest of the weekend were, were pretty good and and and, and uh, brought back some faith in it shall we talk about Mikel Arteta who like Ancelotti sat in the stands this weekend and watched his uh, Arsenal team play yeah this was one of those games where 
I I was looking at it, and when I saw that both of them were in the stands watching this game, both of their facial expressions, not like they tried to hide it or anything, was more along the lines of, like, what have I done? Like, <laughs> like dear God, like, I have truly messed up. But, no, uh, I think, in my humble opinion, Arteta is a fantastic signing right now for Arsenal. I think that he brings a lot of things to the table that, Unai Emery was not able to do. I think that he will see a couple of roadblocks for sure along the way. But I think with his, or I guess with what he has learned from Pep, combined with the fact that he has knowledge of Arsenal as a club, he knows what it's like to play under a a truly great coach with a great side um, underneath him as well that yeah, was you're poorly talk, phrased. Yeah. don't take that out of context <laughs> no, you're talking about but you're talking about you, his, you get my you're point. talking about his time at everton under david moyes of course right of course yeah david <laughs> moyes the um the historic um uh, you know coach of everton football club um along with arson wenger of arsenal football club but i think all those things combined with the fact that he's he's someone who understands football at such a nuanced level and what i mean by that is He's gifted tactically. There's no doubt about that. But he understands the little details of what makes a good footballer. Everything from the technical details of how to position your body when receiving a pass, just the basic, just stuff that matters when you're playing at such an elite level that sometimes gets forgotten. And I think that a lot of this Arsenal side has forgotten. And I think that he is an incredible person to get this side back to where they should be. I don't think it's going to happen this season. But I think that over the next year or so that we'll say see some sort of genuine footballing change board level good luck but at least footballing level i think we start to see those changes yeah i mean i said a couple a few weeks ago i remember when we talked about where do arsenal go next after unai emery and i said most likely most likely the type of manager that pushes arsenal forward out of this absolute mess is someone that they kind of have to take a chance on and, and that's and that's kind of what this is you're taking a chance on someone who has not managed a team um yet before in a first managerial job but he has good experience he has very good experience you know he's had three years under Pep Guardiola he obviously played under Arsene Wenger he comes from um the Barcelona youth a Barcelona youth career uh, he was played in Barcelona C and Barcelona uh, B teams, right? Like so, he so he also has some of those same footballing ideals that Pep Guardiola himself has, even though he was not in the Barcelona academy for the same length of time. But but he was in their academy at some point, or to, right. to, to the end of his youth career. But he has some of those philosophies already ingrained in his mind, and you know you add that with playing under Wenger and spending three full seasons as an assistant to Pep Guardiola, you know, he has about as good a resume as anyone could have. And at this point now, it's just, can he do it on his own? And and that's what they're going to find out. And, you know, they, like I said, they took a chance, but it's, but it's not a bad person to take a chance on looking at his CV. Right. Exactly. Like, I, I think this is a very, and I think it was you that said this in our group chat, uh, a low uh, risk, high reward chance. Right. Um, for, for Arteta, I, I believe. Like, I, I think for Arteta, it's very low risk, high reward for him. 
Right. Exactly. That, that was my point. Not for Arsenal, for, for him specifically. And I think that hopefully we will see the best of what he has picked up in his managerial career and his playing career. And quite frankly, I think we, we will, because we already kind of see just from the atmosphere around the club, they're kind of buying into him already as a manager. Like, I don't know if you see that, but they're kind of buying in and listening a little bit more intently to what he has to say right. versus what previous managers have, have had right. to say in the last four or so years. I, that's just my initial impression. Right. Outside of o- Obama, did you see Obama brother um, comment after? Uh, oh no. What was that? So um, it was a comment on the post on believe it might've been bleacher reports post, or maybe it was the arsenal themselves, Instagram um, of the announcement of Arteta and uh, Willie Obamiang, who's uh, Pierre Emmerich Obamiang's brother, commented something along the lines of, um, like, say, like same, basically, like same shit, or like whether it's Emery or, or whatever. Toilet. Yeah, it was something like something like uh, Emery or whoever it doesn't matter. Like it, it's another like unexperienced manager or something like that, or a manager with not enough Yikes. experience. So. You know, the Obamian thing might be a little tough to overcome, but, but you know, <laughs> he might not even be in the club next season. So you right. know, we both agree that this season is not the season that, that really he's going to get judged on. And he shouldn't be judged on it anyway because it's already – if it's not completely – in the toilet, it is you know the diarrhea is seeping, and and it's just it's just it's just a matter of can we keep it somewhat clean in our in the pants? Right? Yeah, it it is seeping, right? Um, it's almost I wouldn't call it a free run um, between now and the end of the season, but it's essentially a, a test run, if you will, to see to see what he can do with the squad that he has right now, really, right. Right, and, and and we'll be totally encouraged if we see by like the last, well, two months of the season that we that we feel like we're starting to see real progress. Yeah, exactly, and I think that we'll be able to actually see that come. Uh, we'll talk. We'll talk in late August about it and see and see how they're doing. Right, late well, August or late April? No, no, no. I'm talking about August of 2020. Next season. Yes. Okay. I see what you mean. Yeah. I think yeah. that's when I will say, okay, this is how I think Arteta's doing. I think it'll just be too early if we if we say anything the rest of the season because the squads right. have broken in the head anyway. So it's right. Like, yeah, yeah, of course, of course, and 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 I mean, fully broken on the field. So. Exactly. Exactly. So I think that kind of wraps up exactly where we think <laughs> Everton and Arsenal are at. Um, but we wish them the best of luck the rest of this season, they're definitely going to need it. Both of them, but we will be back hopefully before the end of the year with our three decade defining moments. And we have some pretty special moments on there um, that are honestly, if I'm genuinely honest, not really biased. So with that, we'll leave it there and see you guys in a little bit. Take care, everyone. Happy holidays. Thanks guys.